What's up, guys? Welcome to the Kiki Rakira Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. If you've listened to our previous podcast, I say welcome back. And if this is your first time, I say thank you so much for listening in and kicking it with me. My name is Crystal Adesanya, founder and CEO of Kira Health, and I am your host. Now, before we jump in, it is April, and I am really excited about this month because, well, it is a month full of so many celebrations, holidays, and events. So first things first, happy Easter, happy Ramadan, happy Passover, etc., etc., etc. I hope you all have had the opportunity to at least rest, recharge, and spend time with your friends and loved ones. Now, for this episode, we will be talking about a demographic that is near and dear to my heart, which is student health. As most of you know, one of the main reasons why I started Cure Health was based on a negative health experience that I had in college, so it became my mission to change the way care is delivered to young people by ultimately catching them young, and this starts with their college health experience. Today, we will be talking about all things college health, this current state of college health, and what is to come in the future of healthcare for young people. So today, I am joined by one of my favorite leaders in the college health space. He is a phenomenal educator, student health advocate, and leader, Dr. Micah Griffin. So a little bit about Dr. Griffin's background. He received his bachelor's degree in biology from Livingstone College in Salisbury, North Carolina, his master's degree in healthcare administration, a master's degree in exercise science from Life University in Marietta, Georgia, and his doctorate in health services, community health from Walden University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Amongst many amazing things, Dr. Griffin currently serves as Assistant Vice Chancellor for Health and Wellness at North Carolina Central University. In this role, he supports student health services, counseling services, student accessibility, health promotion, campus recreation, and COVID-19 mitigation efforts. As a seasoned college health professional, Dr. Griffin has worked on various grand projects and campus health initiatives that improve student health and campus health service utilization. He currently serves on the American College Health Association ACHA Board of Directors as a member at large and serves on the association's COVID-19 task force. Dr. Griffin's work has been focused on really improving the health outcomes for underrepresented students and students of color. Now, in 2020, he was awarded the Hannibal E. Howell Jr. Award for Promoting Diversity in College Health from ACHA. And in 2019, he helped to establish the historically Black Colleges and Universities HBCUs Coalition at ACHA. Now, Dr. Griffin also developed Cooney Well, an evidence-based framework for integrating well-being and college health services, which was piloted at the City University of New York Cooney this year. And he has held previous roles at Penn State University, City University of New York, and Alabama A&M University. Now, I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Griffin today and really learn about his experience and his thought around improving access to health resources for young people and ultimately improving their health outcomes. So without further ado, I bring to you Dr. Micah Griffin. Hello, Micah. So excited to have you. How are you doing today? 
Hello, Crystal. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Excited to get into this conversation with you. Awesome. Awesome. So, so Micah, today, uh, before we kind of jump into it, I would like our listeners to kind of get to know you more um, on a personal level. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Now, who is Micah Griffin? Oh, wow. Uh, people always ask that. And then when you really think about it, it's more of a difficult question to answer. But who am I? I'm a husband of seven years. I'm a new dad of a new two-year-old who is, well, not quite two, but he thinks he's two, so we're getting into that terrible two stage. Uh, Anna Relique uh, is my little boy, I love him to death. Uh, my wife, like I said, I'm a husband, and I'm just an advocate. I think if I had to describe myself as one word, it would be an advocate. I think my entire career has just shifted around helping people, either as a public health professional, founder of a nonprofit, and just as an overall you know, advocate and member of my community, I've always tried to support people, not just people that look like me, but just people in general. Um, as you can tell, I've been, you know, a lot of different areas of healthcare, you know, student health, minority health, community mental health, and all those positions just have kind of given me a different perspective to see that, you know, healthcare really starts at the foundational community level. And I think that's what the pandemic has shown us has really been a community driven uh, type of approach. I think advocate would probably be the first thing that comes to mind with my career, with my life, and just how I try to move in general. Thinking about advocacy and your life and the work that you've done, what is your role in higher education today? Yeah, so currently I'm the Assistant Vice Chancellor of Health and Wellness at North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, so what does that mean? Um, that means essentially I support all of our student health and wellness departments, initiatives, programs on campus. So our student health center, our counseling and psychological services, uh, campus recreation and wellness, health promotion education, student accessibility services, so our students that need you know, additional support with testing or accommodations fall in that department. Um, and of course, right now, our COVID management team, which is pretty much taking center stage uh, right now on college campuses. But again, my role is to directly support those departments, but also advocate for this sort of like whole, whole health and whole wellness perspective that we talk about a lot of times, whether it's advocating to our leadership and administrators on campus, whether it's building those relationships off campus for, you know, community mental health referrals, if our students need additional care, or just overall being an ally and an advocate for supporting a healthy campus culture. Because I think that's the important connection to student success is them being healthy. Because if you can't go to class, if you are dealing with stress and anxiety, as so many of our students are dealing with, it doesn't matter what the professor has assigned because that's not in the forefront of your mind. So I see my role again is really being an advocate, is really building, being an advocate for students and support and delivery of services, you know, programs and initiatives. So that way they show up as their whole selves and that way they can focus on classwork and be as successful as possible when they're attaining their degree. Thank you so much for sharing. I guess that leads me to another question, right? So what was your college experience like um, and what kind of led you to student health specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. My college experience, I'm going to go back down memory lane. Well, it's not too far back. You know, we millennials, so we keep everything very close to the, to the forefront. But uh, so I went to HBCU, a historically black college and university. Um, I went to Livingstone College in North Carolina, and I went there originally on a football scholarship. So I was an athlete. And, you know, athletes, you know, especially during that time, I really 
you know, academics were important, but it, I didn't choose the school based off of academics. You know, I chose the school because I knew I wanted to play football and they were offering me a scholarship to play. And I was this athlete. I'm going to go to the NFL, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It all, you know, a lot of things athletes think coming out of high school. Uh, so when I got there, you know, as as uh, would it be an HBCU, um, it, it felt almost like home. Um, and when I say home, not just because the majority of the students and faculty and staff, you know, look like me, you know, African-American, it just felt like home, like some of the cultural norms, some of the verbiage, some of the programs and just the overall mission of, you know, my alma mater and most HBCUs is service. Like service is usually found in most of the mission statements and most of the documents and most of the taglines the HBCUs use because essentially that's what they were founded out of they were founded to provide service and to provide a place for newly freely enslaved people to, to go and when they couldn't go to predominantly white institutions so that mission and legacy still carries on today um, and you see that a lot in some of the academic offerings and just the overall culture and that's i think what i was looking for uh, when i why i chose the hbcu and again football was the priority but the fact that it was an hbcu just it just added to it and then also an hbcu secret it might not be a secret, but every Wednesday at every single HBCU across the country, they all serve pretty much the same meal. No matter which HBCU you go to every Wednesday, and you can ask anybody at HBCU, anybody listening right now, anybody that knows, they knows that meal is it's fried chicken, macaroni and cheese and collard greens every Wednesday, fried chicken Wednesday. So that's what's part of the experience. But these are just those cultural norms that I talk about that I think weave us and tie us all together and create an experience or a college experience that, you know, looking back, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, it wasn't the easiest because some HBCUs don't always have best facilities, the most resources. They're coming along and they do have things that, you know, make their campuses appealing to students. But some of those things aren't always at the forefront or at the top of the list uh, when students choose these institutions. So even though we didn't have a lot compared to, to other schools, the experience and the relationships that I built and just that overall I think relationship you have with with faculty and staff is just is just unmatched, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything. I was broke a lot too in college because you you were broke, so it was a broke fun time. I don't know how we did that. How did we survive in college being so broke, broke and just being so happy? Broke fun time. <laughs> broke fun times. <laughs> I remember my college experience as well. Um, you know, definitely. Um, you know, as you might know, Micah, I came to the U.S. as an international student, so I had a culture shock and a very intense uh, broke fun college time. Um, and you said something uh, that was really important. Just thinking through, like your experience going to an HBCU. What was your take into the healthcare for Black people that was available on your campus back then? Um, and do you think anything has changed so far? That's a great question, by the way. Um, and I think when you really think about healthcare in general, whether it's being delivered at a college campus, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a community health setting, whether it's a federally qualified health center, telehealth now, which is, you know, uh, taking flight and really becoming uh, important in a lot of areas. It all comes down to really access and not just access, but confidence and acceptance and not just from those services, but we see that really playing out during this pandemic and something that a lot of people in healthcare knew before this data came out about the number of people infected by COVID hospitalizations, deaths. I don't know if people really remember, but when the pandemic first happened for about four or five months, maybe even six months, we didn't have demographic 
data. Like we didn't have racial demographic data to see who was being impacted disproportionately, who was dying from this virus more than others. I mean, you can close your eyes and look at the history of America and probably guess who was most disproportionately impacted by this virus, but that data wasn't there. And it wasn't until about six months into this virus that that data became available when we really saw that African-Americans, Latinx communities were disproportionately contracting COVID at higher rates. When they did contract it, they were dying at higher rates. Uh, and now that we're looking at vaccine numbers, it's the same thing. They are disproportionately have lower numbers of people that have uh, taken the vaccine and they're still African-Americans and Latinx communities are still more disproportionately impacted. And that brings me back to those three terms that I mentioned, uh, access, confidence and acceptance. That's what we're dealing with now. We're trying to get these historically marginalized communities to take a free vaccine to prevent them from catching COVID is providing access so they have fair and equitable access to the vaccines. It's increasing their acceptance so that they believe these healthcare providers when they tell them this wasn't a uh, vaccine that was just created this year, uh, is, is not attached to 5G networks, is not going to make you infertile. Those things are lies. So trying to get a population that has historically not believed healthcare systems to accept this is a huge burden. And then the last part is confidence, is getting them to have confidence in the fact that if I do get this vaccine, that I might have a few little flu-like symptoms at first, but the long-term benefit far outweighs the risk or the perceived risk that people have put into our minds about the vaccine. And I think that correlates the same way to the healthcare system. Those three factors is what disproportionately impacts us. And that was, my experience was no different on the college campus. It was the same way. Uh, most HBCUs don't tend to have the best resources when it comes to healthcare because either we have not invested over time to make this a priority, or our students who have historically not had the best relationships with healthcare systems, when they come to a college campus, either aren't going to be familiar with knowing how to access that system, or even knowing the right questions to ask when they get in front of a provider who might just not happen to look like them. So we're dealing with a whole lot of barriers and challenges that students present with on campus before they even step foot in the health center that we're asking our practitioners and staff to to address and deal with that you don't always see at either PWI or even some HBCUs don't really, you know, take into account the value of health seeking behaviors and, you know, addressing, you know, access, acceptance and, and confidence. There's a couple of themes that I hear from what you're saying, right? It is important to think through access being a big issue in, within our communities, but also thinking through trust, right? Trust being a, a big barrier when folks feel like they don't trust the healthcare system and they don't trust the type of clinicians that are providing the care or the type of information that they're finding about care and things like that. I know you've held so many roles in student health and in your journey and everything else. Would you say um, representation within the healthcare system for students is important as they navigate healthcare? And is that also one of the reasons why you, as an African-American man, being in healthcare, being in student health is important, you know, for students to see that and know that, you know, they have advocates for their health uh, within the system? Yeah, I think that is one of the most important things is, you know, having representation and we, we see it and we hear it not just in healthcare, but in general, even in the industry, the entertainment industry. You know the food industry transportation you name it the ceos and boardrooms and private equity i mean probably even in your space i can't imagine there's too many african-american women that have started and launched programs and services and telehealth operations like you so it's that same 
thing is that until we see someone that looks like us, we either have a less uh, propensity to trust it. And then we also don't believe that we can even achieve that type of thing. So it's almost like a twofold path that we're going down. We're not only trying to improve that trust, like you just described, to actually access this care, you know, take care of yourself early on, you know, believe what healthcare providers are saying, know how to actually ask the right questions and when something isn't right, voicing those concerns, which is another area uh, that how we're disproportionately impacted with how we engage and talk with providers. But also, like I said, is showing that representation and knowing that there aren't many people that look like me that are in this type of position. Um, I'm affiliated with several professional organizations and I can probably count on one hand how many African-American men you know, hold positions similar to mine. Uh, and that's me being at several different types of campuses, as you mentioned, and those are across several different states. And that has to change. One, because every year we're seeing an increase in diversity, not just in staff hiring, but in the types of students that are choosing to go to college, which means individuals and providers are going to have to be more competent and competent in engaging with these types of students and recognizing some of the conditions are the historical implications that they present with on campus to get around those to even get to talking about care. Um, and also, like I said, representation is important because if you don't see yourself in that space, then you might not even know that that's even available as an option. The thing that really drove me to even choosing healthcare uh, or choosing this path was my grandmother. Uh, so my grandmother, Eleanor Griffin, was a nurse and she was a nurse that came up during a lot more difficult time than us when there were laws in place that were a lot more stricter than they are now that segregated us and put us in positions where we couldn't vote we didn't have access education wasn't even an option and she persevered through all of that and became a nurse and not only did she become a nurse during all that but she also did it while having seven kids like i got one son and i'm trying to figure out how i can even like put on the same shoes and socks that match and she did it with seven so is an inspiration in of itself but really seeing that play out when i was younger and the role that she took with nursing not just from a patient provider standpoint but she really took this idea of community health to a whole new level before community health was even a thing i remember her setting up and organizing health fairs in our neighborhood where the whole street would be blocked off and they would be doing blood pressure screenings and giving healthy food demonstrations and handing out condoms and doing hiv tests right in our neighborhood and as a nine ten year old I was seeing these things, not understanding the impact that it would have. So just seeing that growing up and knowing the path she went down and I knowing the type of person I was, like I really wanted to find a, a profession and a skill that would allow me to change people's lives and really have a voice and make an impact. And I don't know if healthcare administration was the route that I envisioned when I was like a teenager. You know, I just always thought the only way to do it was to be a medical doctor, which is not the only way to do it. Um, so that's another thing is being this representation for students that know they want to do something in healthcare, and think that medical doctor is the only option when in reality, as we both know, there are so many different paths to improving and impacting people's health outcomes. So, again, I see this as a mission for me. And like I said, I, I, I keep going back to that word advocate because I believe the work that I do, although I like to be paid for it and I wouldn't do this for free, no matter what people say, I would do this for free. Nobody paid me. That's something that our generation does not believe in as millennials. We want to be paid for our skill set. But this is something that I truly hold, you know, close to my heart. And I see just the impact that it's had and the impact that it's continuing to have on systems and especially on people that look like me, you know, living longer and, and having better health outcomes. 
No, that is fantastic. Can I take a moment to give a special shout out to Mama Griffin really quickly? Because even being in a space where many things like that are happening can spark a passion that a young person might not even have had, right? So thinking through like there, you know, like you said, there's many ways to go in, into like healthcare and helping people, but kind of seeing it in action, like actually going into the weeds and getting the work done from that perspective is, is really powerful for a young person. So I guess that segues me into my next question, which is really about getting a role in, in this field. Like if, you know, for our listeners out there, students or admins who are thinking about different ways to grow in their journey, what has been your career path? Like, you know, educationally, your first job and so forth. How do you feel like those things kind of lined up together to get you to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. So um, like I said, I originally had the intent of uh, going to medical school. Like I wanted to be a medical doctor because that was the vision I had um, as far as the only way I could do it. Um, so an undergrad I actually majored in biology. So I did get my bachelor's of science in biology. And that was kind of my, you know, biology pre-med, you know, you do your sciences. But as I was navigating biology degree, you know, we were exposed to so many different things from different professions and different opportunities in healthcare. And I really just started exploring different options that were available. And as an athlete, I found out about physical therapy. I found out about exercise science. And I was like, that's a great way to kind of, you know, tie those two together. I can still work in healthcare. I can still, you know, support and work with athletes or physical therapy. So I applied to medical schools um, out of undergrad and I got put on several waiting lists. I think I did get accepted to two actually. And I was on a waiting list for other ones and it was just a disaster. Like it was not an easy process, especially for people that come from backgrounds that don't have doctors in their family and hasn't navigated the MCAT and that whole process, which is another area of barrier for people that look like us. So I, I, I didn't get into medical school or I didn't get into the schools that I wanted. So I said, let me just continue on this path. So I went to graduate school um, at Life University in Marietta, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. Uh, and I pursued a master's in uh, exercise science, sport health science. So the goal behind that degree was to further get me into either physical therapy or some type of sports medicine and rehab. So once I finished that degree, you know, I worked in a couple of jobs that were related to that, but I still didn't feel like, you know, this is what I really want to do. I'm not making a connection to what my original plan was, was to work with underserved communities, historically marginalized populations. Health equity was always, you know, at the forefront of what I wanted to do. And I didn't really feel fulfilled and at a very like young age, I'm talking about like mid twenties where you usually are making bad decisions. Like I was, I made a good decision to pivot. And from there, I had an opportunity to start working in community mental health. And I think that position with a uh, community mental health agency here in North Carolina, that actually really, I would say truly was my first real kind of healthcare administration role. And that was where I was really able to be right there. I'm talking about if on the ground or there was another way to describe like I was really in it you know we were working because we were working with people who were either you know low income uninsured underinsured and they were dealing with either mental health issues or severe mental health issues and it really put us in a, a difficult position to be able to support them because it wasn't just mental health it was providing all those other services that we don't think about if I can't afford to put food in my refrigerator I'm probably not too concerned about sitting down with a therapist and talking about my issues. That's not going to deal with this hunger that I'm feeling or if my lights are about to get turned off or I'm about to get put out of my apartment. So these are the real things that people are dealing with. And in that position, it really allowed me to see all the different areas and how your environment 
actually is the number one factor that impacts your health. Uh, we talk about cost, talk about insurance, and those are barriers. But your environment, where you live, is the number one indicator of how long you will live. We just got to look at zip codes to find that out. But essentially, in that role is where I really started exploring this idea of how I bridge management administration to actual deliverables and service outcomes and program development. And tying all those things together allowed me to really get this kind of clearer vision of where my path was. And that's where it kind of slowly tied into partnerships with different colleges. And we started working on equity programs with them and grants. And then I started kind of tiptoeing back into there. But from that grant opportunity, it evolved into some more full-time positions with a couple colleges. And then from there, I found out that college health was a thing. And that's where my career just started heading. And kind of for the past decade, I would say, you know, I've been in, you know, various administrative roles at, you know, several colleges and, and universities across the country. And I've been able to tie all that together still. Like, even though, you know, student populations are the primary demographic, I've still been able to build, you know, partnerships and collaborations with, you know, community organizations, nonprofits, you know, technology companies like Care Health. So these are just, it still puts me in that position to be able to still build those relationships, support underserved students, and then change health behavior. So I saw it as like a win-win. Then I got to be at a college. So athletic events, swag, you know, it's great. So that's really awesome, uh, Micah. Thank you so much for sharing. I think it's so refreshing uh, for myself and for our listeners, just thinking through your entire journey, even being an athlete and like juggling school and working through the MCAT and medical school. You're absolutely right. You know, not really having folks who have gone through that path is a barrier, right? To be able to help you know, like, what do you think about? How do you study? How do you prepare? Like, you know, what are the different things you would be expecting in this process uh, can be a barrier but now understanding that there are other paths as well um, because one of the things that I have experienced personally as an immigrant uh, you know child was you know we only had a few options for what we could do which was medicine engineering and law so even for myself for a long time like I was supposed to become an attorney I was supposed to go to law school and that didn't pan out and now I run a healthcare company because I had a bigger passion within this space and I found a core problem that needed to be solved for millions of people and that's kind of what led me here. How did you juggle being an athlete and your mental health when it came to not getting the things that you wanted and, and things like that and be able to overcome that? So I think the best way to say this is I didn't and and i think that's honestly now that i'm on the other side as a you know college health administrator i see it now as, a, as somebody on the other side um and i didn't like i didn't do a good job of, of managing that you know looking back now was uh were there times when i was depressed where i had anxiety like looking back now i think so like i think just as an athlete you know there's so many demands on you um you're never really out of season depending on what university or college you're at and depending on how good of a program it is, that's probably that might be the priority or the perceived priority. They're not going to come out and say that. You know, they called you a, a student athlete with student being a first. But depending on the school you're at, it might be an athlete athlete or athlete, sometimes student. Um, and those students, you know, that are athletes, like I said, they're in very difficult positions because a lot of them are there on scholarship where they have to perform in order to stay in school. And I think talking about that is a whole that's probably a whole nother conversation because most student athletes are african-american 
especially those ones that are go to these larger power five schools um and there isn't a lot of support services for them there's a lot of people that look like them they still are dealing with environments that they aren't familiar with and thinking back to my own personal experience there were resources there on campus like we had a counseling center you know we had a health center we had these things but again I'm on my own now as a student. I was living with my parents before this and now I'm on my own. So it's up to me to know when something is not feeling right. And if this is not feeling right, what does this not feeling right even mean? How do I explore these emotions that I never had to manage and juggle before? I never had to be in an environment where there were, you know, thousands of plus new people that I never met before and the professor doesn't even know my name and there's a financial aid office and I parked in the wrong spot so now I got a ticket and I left my meal card or I don't so there's so many different barriers and challenges that college students are faced with where we as you know older adults who have developed a better critical thinking skill might look at that as being kind of minimal but to someone at the time who is you know 18 19 20 those things could seem insurmountable and I think that's what you know the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us in college health is that it further exasperated some of those mental health issues that students were already dealing with. So you 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 put all the things that I just mentioned that a college student would deal with, and now you add this new virtual environment that we're all learning to navigate. The isolation, the loneliness, the loss that students have, have had to experience, whether it's someone close to them, whether it's a family member. I mean, close to a million people have died from COVID-19 in this country. I mean, close, I don't think we've I don't think we we slow down enough to to recognize how like how impactful that is. Close to a million people are no longer here that would have been here. The African American life expectancy has been reduced by almost ten years. Like, let me say it again: the the life expectancy for African Americans was about seventy seven years old. It has now dropped to about sixty nine in two years because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I don't think people recognize like we're in it now. So it's hard to really kind of step back and see the lasting impact that this is going to have and not just for college students, but people in general. And you add all of that in there and then you say, go figure it out on a college campus. It is extremely difficult. When you were first talking, I was having flashbacks to my own college experience. And then you added that layer, which is the pandemic. That is something that a lot of us didn't have to deal with millennials, right? You have like, the Gen Z generation who are actually even deciding, do I want to go to college? That experience even worthwhile for me. How do I navigate that specifically around, you know, mental health issues, like you clearly stated? And that was my next question, actually, Michael. So thank you for that segue, because, you know, what, what I want to understand from you being a college health administrator is, you know, as we think about the pandemic and its effects on mental health for students, what is some of the ways you have seen, you know, the campuses or the different campus organizations kind of navigate mental health on campus? So I think we're we're really seeing a a shift, um, and not just a shift in a couple areas, but I think we're really seeing a shift in how we look at higher education um, and the role that health services play in the matriculation of students. Um, I think prior to the pandemic. Yes, student health services were important. Like, you know, it was one of those things you just check a box off. Like, you know, you got a student health center, check. You know, you got a you got residence halls, check. You got a library, check. It was there, it operated. You know, the, the building wasn't burning down. Students were being taken care of. But now, 
we're seeing a huge shift where university colleges and universities are now prioritizing the place or the position that student health services have on campus. So now we're seeing the development of chief wellness officers on a lot of colleges and universities where they have these sort of executive level wellness professionals that advise the chancellors or the presidents and ensure that when there are discussions, whether it's strategic planning, whether it's policy, whether it's initiatives, um, whether it's student access, that there's someone at the table at this executive level that one has that health and wellness background, but can also be in these conversations to ensure that health and wellness are part of those conversations. So we're really seeing a shift in the way that colleges and universities uh, think about health and wellness and the way that they position their staff to be involved in these conversations. And especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, again, it has really forced us to evaluate how we're delivering these services to students. I think the year 2020, when the pandemic first started, everybody was doing everything on Zoom. I mean, it was a Zoom everything it was zoom counseling sessions it was zoom group sessions it was zoom activities it was zoom after hours it was zoom 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 everybody was on zoom students were zoomed out but that was a shift like before that unless you were you know an innovative uh you know company or university that was already doing these things some colleges had never done anything online like they had never even thought about telehealth they had never like a counseling session on a computer with a camera like that would have been unheard of before, but now that's all, almost becoming the norm. It might not be the number one thing that colleges, counseling centers are doing, but that's definitely a part of the service offering now. Like if you look at most scheduling systems, when the student selects the type of appointment they wanna have, like telehealth is now a part of that option. And you're now starting to see student health centers shift to where they even have spaces built in the student health centers, some universities have even partnered with residential um, housing and residential life where they're creating these spaces where students can privately have their telehealth sessions. So you're starting to see more investment along the lines of the role that telehealth plays in delivering of services. We are starting to slowly get back in person. So we're starting to get back to some of those more group sessions, some of those more one on one type of things. But you're really seeing a shift with the value of telehealth, but also from that wellness perspective, like. You know, we talk about wellness and well-being so much, but I don't think we really truly like, practiced it. But now we're starting to see infrastructures and buildings and facilities being built that support mindfulness, that support meditation, that support these sort of, you know, eight dimensions of wellness that's becoming a part of our day-to-day -day activities. And my hope is that this is sustainable. That is not just a once the pandemic, and I'm putting up air quotes, once the pandemic ends that We'll just go back to how we were doing things before. I'm hoping that we learn from this. But as a public health person, I have to be realistic and know that we've been down this road before. There was a, another pandemic that we experienced almost 100 years ago, and we lost more than a million people. And we learned from that somewhat, but we are kind of right back making some of those same mistakes again. So not to paint a bleak picture, but I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic. But we do have to be real and recognize that public health has never been a priority, you know, for this country because it's so circular, right? Like if you're trying to improve the number of people that brush their teeth, that's there's not an endpoint to that. You know, there's a constant in, investment of services, of outreach, of PSAs. It's not just an endpoint. And that's what public health is. And that's why it's so hard for somebody that's funding that or somebody outside of this public health space our mental health space to recognize the value of an investment because you don't always see a, a return when you're investing in mental health services. How do you measure 
you know, that is a return on an investment. So we're trying to be strategic now, you know, myself and, you know, other in people in this space are really trying to be strategic with how we advocate for sustainability, you know, for these services to ultimately support, you know, mental wellness and, and, and health equity and prevention. Thank you so much for sharing that, Micah. And on the topic of, you know, health equity, when you think about like diversity and inclusion on top of this, what are some things that college administrators, from your perspective, need to keep in mind as they develop strategies for equity and inclusion um, on their campus? What do they need to really dig into? Um, I think the first thing is that you need to have people that are from these communities a part of the conversation. Um, and not just recognize them because they have a lived experience, but also because they are experts. And I think that's the mistake a lot of organizations make, whether it's colleges, universities, whether it's the private industry, is that they call on black people to only talk about black issues. When in reality, we as black people have expertise and experiences in a lot of different areas, because guess what, we're human. And we do other things besides just live in our black skin. Now, I'm not saying exclude us because we've seen what happens when there is no diverse representation on decisions and companies roll things out and then they have to roll it back in and then apologize. So we've seen when there is an absence. What I'm suggesting is, is that we find this true, organic, genuine balance where you recognize that individuals from this community can provide expertise, but not just because they have a lived experience. Like if you look at the board of directors for the American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, I guarantee you that board is not made up of people that have just have experienced heart disease or people that just have cancer because you have experienced that. So that makes you an expert about that experience. But that doesn't always make you an expert of knowing how to improve that experience. Right. Just because you live with cancer doesn't mean you know how to eradicate it. Just because I have experienced racism doesn't mean I know how to get rid of it. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of these colleges and universities make when they hire and invest in these diversity, equity, inclusion directors, vice presidents, these positions is that they think that because someone has a lived experience that they can come in and they can completely change three or 400 years of historical structural racism. And that's just not going to happen. A lot of these institutions were built slave labor. They were built with people by people that owned slaves. There was discriminatory practices that didn't allow people of color to attend these institutions in our parents' lifetime, right? Like my father went to a segregated school his entire K through 12. And then he went to an HBCU. This was in his lifetime. So think about that. In this lifetime, colleges and universities that now admit people of color had laws that didn't allow people of color to go to these in our lifetime. And we're not talking about this just was the thing they did for one year. We're talking about since the founding of the oldest institution in America, which is what NYU or one of those schools are really old. We're talking about 17, 1800s. We just started being able to go in the 1950s. So to think that they're gonna is gonna be some 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 systemic shift in beliefs and cultures because there are new people there. No, that's what structural institutional racism is. It's racism that is so embedded in the institution that you can be a participant of this discriminatory practices and not even know you're doing it. Like that's how structural institutional racism works. And that's what our colleges and universities are still dealing with. Now, there are some that are actively working towards trying to undo some of these things, but it's not going to be an overnight change, not just in our admissions practices, 
but also in how we engage and talk about healthcare and how we engage and deliver healthcare services to our students is no different. So we got a lot of work to do. But the benefit is, is that it's people that look like you, people that look like me, that are being intentional about closing that gap. Absolutely. I, I just love everything about that, uh, Micah. I had, you know, that was like a mic drop moment. I had snaps going because, you know, you're, you're hitting all the important points there, right? Because at the end of the day, it is a collective mission and a collective goal to be able to solve these problems, right? I always think about healthcare and, and care in general from like a culture-centered perspective, right? Understanding the racial, social, and cultural nuances of healthcare, but not thinking about it from the aspect alone of, oh, you have to have a Black doctor to deliver care. No, you have to have representation in your healthcare, but everyone else that delivers care has to learn how to deliver care from that cultural-centered mindset and perspective, right? So educating each other in that conversation, because you end up in a space where you have an older white doctor who has never had a conversation like this, and then you're lost, right? Versus an older white doctor sitting in a room with a younger black doctor and being on the same page as far as how health care should be delivered and how, you know, equity and inclusion are important as you navigate the system. Because yes, that builds trust, that builds perspectives that allow people to openly seek care right it's about actually seeking care uh, you know not just because you're sick but because you feel comfortable learning about your health care being on top of your health and finding ways as a community collectively to forge towards doing these things and that brings a thought to my head you know and a very natural segue here uh, micah and thank you so much for all the gems dropped uh, in this time already so i'm thinking through you know you are an active member of the american college health association so can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your involvement uh, within the um, association some of the resources that are available both for students and for admins to be able to leverage um, to solve some of these problems yeah, definitely. Um, and thanks for that question. Um, so the American College Health Association is is recognized as the leading um, professional organization for American College Health. I mean, there's a long history of the amazing work um, that they have done, um, not just in advocating for, you know, college health, but ensuring that it is recognized as a as a true piece of student affairs. And I think the, the again, the pandemic has really positioned uh, ACHA, American College Health Association, as that leading voice, uh, you know, we've been able to really be involved with the Center for Disease Control with the development of the, uh, the guidelines for institutions of higher learning around COVID. Um, our COVID-19 task force has been recognized from several news outlets. We've created uh, reopening guidelines, standards, uh, documents, like you name it. We've really tried to position ourselves as this resource because college health is so varied, it's so different. Um, is delivered, is set up in so many different ways based off the size of the institution, where it's located, the funding source, it can vary so widely. And the thing I appreciate the most about, you know, ACHA is that they do a, a great job of having resources available for all institutions, regardless of the size and scope. Um, something that I'm personally proud of is we developed about three years ago, uh, three or four years ago now, the HBCU Coalition which operates within ACHA. And the goal of that coalition was to give a voice to HBCUs in this organization. Because again, just like we talked about a few minutes ago for so long, you know, HBCUs and uh, minority serving institutions have not always been a part of the larger conversations. And it's also important with healthcare, 
right? Like you can't have, you know, this huge data set or all this research on college students and not have any HBCU students or black students be a part of that data because I can't use that as a healthcare administrator at an HBCU if it's not representative of the population that I'm directly serving. So one goal, a priority of that co HBCU coalition was to do just that, was to advocate for HBCUs within this organization, create a collective space where other professionals from other HBU, HBCUs can come together, can share information, can share resources and ensure that there is representation within the organization for us, which ultimately, you know, impacts our campuses and our students. Um, but they've done an incredible job, like I said, not just with the COVID-19 pandemic and providing resources and information, but again, also on the advocacy front. Uh, they have a whole team of advocates um, that work with um, the federal government, local and state government, and always advocating. And we saw that really play out with COVID, um, but also in some of the more conservative states that aren't always forward thinking when it comes to uh, sexual health, contraception, um, and even LGBTQ uh, students' rights. ACHA plays an active role in supporting those, whether it's through the development of guidelines, documents, uh, recommendations, and overall advocacy and support. So overall, it's a great organization to be a part of. Like I said, it really serves at the forefront of advocating and supporting uh, of college health. That's awesome. One of the things that you mentioned is around LGBTQ plus health and sexual health. And, you know, those are topics that a lot of administrators have not talked about as openly for a long time. And we're seeing a shift um, as far as like having those conversations and bringing it to the forefront. So what would you say is kind of like the path forward? Uh, so I think just in general, there's a there's some ways to go. Um, like you said, these are you know, student populations that have always existed on college campuses, uh, whether it's women or, you know, LGBTQ plus populations, uh, first generation students, international students uh, like yourself. Um, there are so many different populations and subgroups on campus. And I think what we've seen probably over the past maybe five to 10 years is this slow incremental shift towards not only just recognizing these individual student groups, but also recognizing that they have unique needs that venture over into healthcare systems and not just healthcare, but um, well, healthcare included, but mental health as well. And not just even that, but also from the student support standpoint, like that doesn't, that doesn't have to be, you know, someone from the LGBTQ community that supports LGBTQ plus students, but they at least have to be an advocate or an ally that understands the unique nuances that these students present that come from these populations and these groups. And that's no different than what we talked about earlier with having representation uh, of African, African Americans in this space. I think the same thing is true. Um, you don't have to be from that community to be an advocate or an ally or to know how to support those individuals from that community. And like I said, I think we're really starting to see a shift with how uh, leaders at these colleges and universities are thinking about how we engage with students and not just because they want to, but because these students from these demographics are forcing them to. Because that's one thing I love so much about college students today. That's probably why I love working at a college because it kind of makes you still feel like you're young. You can still kind of engage with students a little bit and talk their language. So, I mean, they're a little different. They're a little different than we were when we were in college, but it's still fun to, to work with them and engage with them. But that's one thing I love so much about this uh, you know, current group of students, Gen Z, is that they don't care about how you feel they don't care about what you did for 100 years they just know that this is not right and we're not gonna be quiet about it and they're gonna let you know about it and i love that so much i love students that want their voice to be heard 
are organized in a, in a fashion to, to make their voice be heard and that it leads to sustainable institutional change because students are the main stakeholder for colleges and universities. And I would encourage any students that are listening to this or any parents of students that are in college right now, please know that colleges and universities cannot operate without students. Like that's it, Those, that's the primary stakeholder. If there were no students there, you would just be a bunch of buildings with some nice grass. Like that's all you would be. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, you're you're spot on like these days you see students who are really active when it comes to their on campus, like student health advocacy committees and, and things like that. And we've seen that even within our business as we've been communicating with colleges and universities and finding that the students are really decision makers when it comes to certain things like they are actually speaking up for what it is that they want. And it's important for the university administrators to actually listen to the things that they want. Right have them represented in some of those conversations and some of those decisions, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are using these services. Thank you so much for sharing that, Micah. So we're getting towards the end of this conversation, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. So thank you so much again, Micah. And I have one last question for you, and that is to get to know you a little bit better. If you were to be anything in your life, what would it be? anything else wow if i was going to be anything else what would Superpower, i want to be power whatever it is what would it be hmm. honestly i think i would probably want to be a social media influencer they have the best life from the outside looking in of course they make content they get checks they end up music videos they end up being memes and gifts and I don't know, it just seems like a very fun kind of, you know, weird kind of just fun lifestyle. I could see if when if social media was as big as it was when I was in college, it probably would be it was just I couldn't even imagine what that would look like. <laughs> I told you do name would be like my M M money or something like that. MGZ or something. We'll go with MGZ. Let's go with that. That's my new social oh media influencer handle. <laughs> Thank you so so much, Micah. You do have the personality to be a social media influencer even now. Okay. Appreciate so. that. Thank you. If this college health thing don't work out, I'll keep that in mind and see what I can do. Can't be too late, right? Mm -hmm. It's never too never late. Too late. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again, Micah. I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I learned so, so much from just talking to you and just getting into your mind and your journey and everything else. So I'm super excited for your new role and a new opportunity. I wish you all the best of luck and we'll be in touch. Thank, Thank you. you so much. This was great. I appreciate you having me.